Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert Experts on Expert. I'm Dan Shepard, and I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Hello. Hello. So this is a confusing guest, <laughs> as you'll learn about in the episode. Yeah. Because there's a very famous actor of the same name that's on one of our favorite shows, Secession. That's right. This is not him. No. <laughs> this is an equally impressive, perhaps even more impressive, yeah. Brian Cox, who's a physicist. Yes. And he is a Peabody Award-winning physicist, Okay. He was also in a rock band that charted. This guy's incredible. He's got a few wonderful books. One, Why Does E Equal MC Squared? The Quantum Universe, The Human Universe. And right now, he has a super cool live tour where you can go get dazzled by the wonderments of our cosmos. It is called Horizons, a 21st Century Space Odyssey. Now listen, if you didn't like science, you're going to be half-ass tempted to yeah, bail from this right. episode because it gets it gets deep. We've never had an episode like this. I I feel I can definitively say that. I agree. I was fucking lost. But here's the beauty. This is why I say don't bail because we're lost too, and we we claw our way back. We, yeah. we we find the threads and we try to pull ourselves to his understanding. We didn't really get there, but we got much closer. It makes you so curious about the universe and existence, and it's it's kind of profound. Yeah, even if you don't get the intricacies of what he's saying, the global thoughts. Of yes. our place in this enormous realm are really worth having. Yes. Please enjoy Brian Cox. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. We are supported by HelloFresh. You know, there are days when it's really hard to decide what to eat. You stare blankly into the fridge for what feels like hours with no success. And you end up hangry. Well... I've got a solution. HelloFresh, they deliver fresh ingredients and chef-curated recipes straight to your home. And they even take care of the meal planning. I love it because I always text Callie, what should I eat for dinner? Okay, you ask her a lot. Uh, yeah, because I get stressed and overwhelmed. And she doesn't know. And so HelloFresh is so great if I have it because then it's all there. I don't have to make any decisions. Well, what did you get into last night? Ooh, last night I had a, you know I love prosciutto. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? That was so good. I had a prosciutto wrapped chicken and it had a truffle chive mashed potatoes and a lemony broccoli. It was delicious. Oh my goodness. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE and use the code DAXFREE for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life. Available for a limited time at HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE with the code DAXFREE. He's an armchair 
So thank you for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Do you live here or no? You live in England, London, yeah? Because yeah. you're teaching still. Yeah, in Manchester. My only European girlfriend was from Manchester when I was a child. Met her skiing. Really? Does that mean you can do the accent? No, no, no. You would hate it. I mean, when you're not here, I'll do it for sure. Yeah. But in your presence, I, I shan't bear. <laughs> now, didn't one of the guys from Weezer go pursue like a uh, doctoral degree in physics or, or something like that? I don't know. The famous example is Brian May. He had a Queen's guitarist. Oh, so he became a physicist. He was a physicist and then Queen you know, signed their deal and so he stopped, did Queen... Uh-huh. And then went back. Did queen. Get out. He went back after it. So Just not, not queen out. Got yeah, that off the... Check that yeah, out and then, the yeah, list. So I've got that on my system now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> done, yeah, yeah. Done the rock star thing. Top 10 most legendary band ever. And uh, finished his PhD. And did he go on to do anything relevant in physics? Or? He does. And actually in the UK, he's been quite involved in a program called The Sky at Night. I think it's the longest running TV show of any kind, actually. It's oh, an what? astronomy show that's been going for 50 years or more. He's a very, very keen astronomer and finished his PhD not so long ago. And if he was in Queen, he is not in his 30s. No, he went back yeah. later in life. Okay, so you have a similar trajectory from show business to academia to now back to show business. But before we get there, I'm curious, both as a guitar player as he was and then as a keyboardist like you, I was shocked to learn years ago that music is just mathematics, right? Yeah, although when I, if I'm just sat there playing piano or keyboards, I, I don't see any crossover at all in the thought processes. It seems to me to be a completely different mental space that you go to, I think. Is it possibly that when you hit the keyboard, it makes the same note every time and that you then search for another thing that would give order to the world around you and that you actually seek control? greatly. Is that possible? I mean, honestly, I've thought about it and I just don't see it. The crossover is that music and art and literature and science, all those disciplines are emotional reactions to the world. So I think they all share a common foundation, which is you have to notice there is something interesting and worth exploring and worth representing. I think that's where the commonality lies because science is a creative endeavor. It oh. relies on you to be interested, first of all, and to ask questions. And I think in that sense, music is similar. I would say, yes, yeah, science is even driven more by having a perspective that is novel and unique and requires this huge barrier to break through. And I think also music when it's successful is someone brings their own point of view to these same notes everyone's had yeah. and somehow arranges them in a way and does all these things and makes it novel and interesting. Yeah, the live shows that I'm doing, they start with a piece of music, which is a uh, classical music. It's by Sibelius, a Finnish composer who composed the, the piece that we use in 1915, Fifth Symphony, Third Movement. And the reason it's there is because I asked a friend of mine who's a conductor, what should Stanley Kubrick have used in 2001? And, uh, and he immediately <laughs> said this seriously. He said, no, Sibelius would have fit those ideas. The thing is that cosmology, astronomy, those disciplines, they raise profound questions. When you're faced with the size and scale of the universe and our apparent insignificance within it, how do you make sense of the things that we discover? Well, I think there are commonalities in those great composers faced questions like this. I say at the start of the show, what does it mean to live a fragile, finite life in an infinite, eternal universe? That's a question that's universal. Cosmology forces you to face that question. It's why many people are terrified about the discoveries that we've made about the size and scale of the universe. But composers like Sibelius thought about that. They thought about their own mortality. 
Um, the piece we use, it's about swans taking off from a lake in Finland, but also it's about the deep beauty of nature and the transience of life, and you can hear it in the music. And so I think that mixing science and music and art and literature allows you to explore the meaning of the discoveries more easily because those artists have already done it. They've thought about it and that, that music was their response to these big questions. Yes. We could also maybe say that in my experience with the musicians I grew up with, there is an incredible amount of time spent by yourself. In the absence of humans, you're doing just fine. You're so focused on this thing. And then by this practice, you become great at it. And I would argue getting a doctorate degree in physics is going to be a lot of you just sitting with ideas and being comfortable in that space. Yeah, definitely. And just trying to understand things. With physics, I say to students a lot that it's about not kidding yourself that you understand something, not deceiving yourself. You have to keep going. And only you will know ultimately when you really have a deep understanding of something. And it can take a long time. So when you have a student and the student... Me. Was... I was horrible at physics. You were... Oh, the worst, the worst. <laughs> My brain cannot go there. See, I don't think there is such a person whose brain can't go there. It's like saying there's a kind of person who can't learn an instrument. I don't think that's true. I think it's about practice. People will go at different rates. Yeah. Some people yeah. are fantastic and pick it up quickly, and some people it takes more time. But it's ultimately practice. Yeah. And I don't think it's the speed. It's the same in science. It's not how fast you are at picking up the ideas. It's what the music you make is, right? The understanding that you read. Although there is a historical stereotype about physicists in particular, that they seem to have a window of great creativity and breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Not unlike comedians, we seem to have a shelf life, as you'll see as this unfolds. I would have been much better <laughs> 10 years ago at this. I thought you were going to say like first 10 minutes. And no, then... no. <laughs> you age out, it seems. But there is a pattern, isn't there, among great physicists? It's generally like your 20s and 30s. Yeah, certainly in mathematical physics. I think you're right. I mean, you look at Einstein. Actually, quantum mechanics is a great example. It's one of our foundational theories of the world. It was really developed initially in the 1920s and 30s. And it was called, in German, I'll pronounce it wrong now, but it was Knabenphysik or something. It was boy physics. Because most of them, all these people, Heisenberg, they were quite young when they were doing it. And by young, I mean 20s. Right. And actually Schrodinger, who's most famous probably, Schrodinger's cat, he was in his 30s and considered to be the old guy. Even that history is really interesting because I read one of the great Oppenheimer books and it talks about, again, this is kind of a Malcolm Gladwell thing where it's like you're gifted and then you have also some luck, you end up in the right place at the right time. And so Oppenheimer happened to be in Europe when those young guys were all proposing this, which was kind of sacrilegious at that moment. And he came back with a wide openness to quantum mechanics that no one else really had. Oppenheimer's actually become quite a hero of mine. The BBC have a thing called the Wreath Lectures. They're just, you know, interesting people giving these lectures every year, and they're really prestigious. And Oppenheimer gave them in 1953, and it was just before months before McCarthy sort of went after him. And he was reflecting on the experience he's had in the Manhattan Project. So he doesn't really mention it, right, but creating the, the atom bomb. And reflecting on how science as a discipline and the way it teaches us to think can be deployed more widely to help us gain some wisdom. Because he felt that our knowledge that he'd played a large role in delivering, in particular, to build a nuclear bomb. Yeah. He felt that our knowledge had exceeded our wisdom. 
And he was very surprised that we were around, that he was around in the 1950s after delivering this power to his children, basically, which I mean the human race, that don't have the wisdom to control the power that science had delivered. Well, in fact, they tried to map onto you, I think, something that was true with the Manhattan Project, which is they tried to say that Hadron Collider, that the physicists involved had an inkling that perhaps once these protons hit each other, that they'd create a black hole. <laughs> but that's horseshit. <laughs> that wasn't true, right? No, no. I mean, when you think about these things, I mean, the answer is cosmic rays, which um, are very high energy particles that come from space. We don't really know the origin of some of them. They're really ultra high energy. There have been single particles detected that have hit the Earth with the energy of a professional tennis serve, right? So a tennis ball traveling at like 100 miles an hour, yeah. one particle. So energy is way in excess of anything that we deliver at the LHC. It's, it's child's play. And the Earth is still here, right? So it's, it's bombarded by those things all the time. And you can actually do the analysis. We know about how many of those particles hit us per minute or per hour or per year. And so you can say, well, the Earth's been here for four and a half billion years, and so we can calculate the probability that those energies, nature is not stable. And yes. you find out, of course, that it is stable at those energies because it's just that we're doing this little experiment in Geneva. Nature's doing the experiment all the time on a much grander scale. But you can check. That's the point. So obviously, we do check. And uh, that was the answer. But famously, during the Manhattan Project, there were many of the physicists, well, I don't want to say many, there were some of the physicists involved that prior to the first detonation, they said, we can't do this. It's going to ignite all the hydrogen in the atmosphere, and the Earth is going to catch on fire like a big fireball. And many left. I mean, it's a different thing, isn't it? Because that was wartime, and they were charged with a particular job yeah. in the face of a great evil at yeah. that time. But it's interesting to read Offenheimer and Feynman, actually. isn't a great hero of mine. He got the Nobel Prize later. You know, Offenheimer and Feynman thought really deeply about how we could gain more control over our impulses, right, given that we'd now got this tool, the atom bomb. Oppenheimer's reflection, they're worth reading. You can get the transcript of the lectures that he gave with oh. the BBC. You can only get one recording because they erased over the other ones because the tape was really valuable. Oh, <laughs> it's really? astonishing. Oh, it's like, oh, you wow. believe it. <laughs> they recycled it. Yeah, they, they did. <laughs> so, but there's one of them surviving. And they're really dense. But the thoughts that are very relevant today, actually. So he thinks about the way that nature forces you to think. Right. What is useful about that in other areas? And one of the things that nature teaches you very, very quickly is humility. Because you have an idea about how nature works, you do a bit of research, make some measurements, and it says, no, you're not right. And Feynman actually said, that's the most valuable thing, is not to be afraid of doubt, right? not to be scared to not know. And he called science a satisfactory philosophy of ignorance, which I think is a beautiful phrase. Ooh. It's Feynman, actually, but Offenheimer alludes to it in the 50s, said, uh, if you think about democracy, that democracy is that. It's the acknowledgement that we don't know how to run a country. Therefore, we change it every four years. Right, uh, right. That's so valuable. The moment you think you know how to do it yeah. is the moment you should not be doing it, right, in politics. Science teaches you that and nature teaches you that. And really that's an uncomfortable history. feeling for people. People desire definitive statements. They like the laws as opposed to the theories. We're attracted to certainty. I remember the line very vividly in Feynman's essay it's called The Value of Science, which you can get on the web. And he said that we have to learn that doubt is not to be feared but welcomed. I think we establish the wrong expectations. So if the expectation is science can right now tell us everything about the known universe, that's a bad expectation to have. That's not what's happening at all. And that would go for 
everything. I was a social science major. It's changed 30 times since I left. Yeah. And only because it was propositioned as they have the answer, now does it look like there's some kind of a failing in it. But I don't think anyone involved would claim, oh, we've got it. Stop thinking about it. Let's move on. But just like, I think the broader objective is like, oh, let's just keep pushing the ball further up the hill. We're certainly a kabillion years from knowing, but we have a little bit more than yesterday. And that's really the objective. Yeah. And social science is far more complicated. Physics is a simple thing, right? In some sense, you're dealing with little particles or actually the whole universe, which is still simpler to understand than a human being. Yes. Right? Or a collection of human beings. Far more predictable. A, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But you'll never advance your knowledge if you think you know everything now. Science is the best that we can do given our limited knowledge at any given time. It changes. And people sometimes think when it changes, when the advice changes or the understanding changes, that means that therefore you're not worth listening to because you kind of changed. <laughs> but actually what we're seeing is in real time is the evolution of understanding. That happened so much during COVID. It was like, yeah. okay, here's what we know now. And then that would change because they would gain more information. And then people would be like, oh, well, they're just giving us one piece of information and then negating it the next day. So I don't want to listen to any of it. And it's like, well, it's going to change with more intel. Exactly. I mean, we knew nothing about that virus. You yeah. go back two and a half years, it wasn't around. Right. You knew nothing about it. What you were seeing was science in real time. Yeah. And I have great respects, actually, for the scientists who had to speak in the public arena. Really unusually, they were having to speak, describing research in real time. Yeah. And you're right, people tend to switch off. And it's a weakness in our society because all the reliable knowledge we've obtained about the world has been acquired through that process of trial and error and of making a mistake and getting it wrong and then finding out that you're wrong and then improving your knowledge. We had a guest. They were arguing that we teach science incorrectly, at least here. I don't know how it happens in Britain. But the order that this person suggested is you should start with physics because physics then informs chemistry and then chemistry then informs biology or that physics creates chemistry and chemistry creates biology. Much as I would like to agree with you as a physicist, I don't think it's right because the lines are very blurred. The point is that if you start with fundamental particle physics, let's say, so you say the world is made of these things, quarks and things, and then they make protons and neutrons, and you've got no chance of explaining anything like a biological cell. Meaning there's nothing sexy or interesting enough? No, it's just too hard. You can't understand the cell from the point of view of the atoms within the cell. So biology is what you might call a higher level view, but it's a different process. We have nowhere near the understanding to understand something even as simple as a single cell from first principles, right? So the idea you've got a theory of everything that you should strive for, yeah. and from that, we'll understand the human brain. Right. It's complete nonsense. It's not possible. So I don't think it's right to say this science is more fundamental than that science. Same with social science. You can't say, well, social science is a property of things that are made of matter, and so therefore we'll start with atomic physics. But I guess the point that they were making is we start with basically the end result of all these things. We start with the animal. This mm -hmm. is how you teach kids. And then you're going, oh, but, you know, you have cells in your body. What are in the cells? You know, DNA. What's DNA? Oh, DNA is chemistry. And then you learn chemistry. So you're just, you're going in that direction. I guess it's just what direction do you want to go in? 
See, I think the most important thing is the process. Let's say you want to ask the question, how do termites get together to build a termite mound? Then the process you go through is the same as saying, well, how do protons and neutrons stick together inside an atomic nucleus, right? The process is that you observe and you come up with an idea, you check that against how the real world works and you modify your idea. And I think that's the important thing. So I don't care how we teach that. If there's one thing that I think... I'd love more people to know, and probably everyone, ideally, in you know my ideal world, would be that process of acquiring reliable knowledge. Might not necessarily be right, but it's the best we can do. How do you do that? You know, that's why experiments are important in schools. And so I don't care what the experiments are. I don't care whether they're biology or chemistry or physics. It doesn't matter to me. I would also argue, though, that we are humans and branding and packaging is relevant, right? So, of course, biology is a really easy first stop because my kids love animals. So they start by liking a bear and they see a fish. There's some difference. Now I can get into cold-blooded, warm blood, all these things. I don't think there's any real hook for physics. (laughs) There's a sexy element of it to me that I think needs to be sold Mm. that could excite people. I had no interest in astronomy. I took an astronomy class in college. My mind was blown because you like magic. Love it. The notion that everything we know virtually comes from looking at light is absolutely mind-blowing. And then when you go, well, how? How could I tell how far a star is away, what the star is burning, the distance? You get down into how many things you can learn from a bit of light. And that when you put it through a spectrometer, you can see that it's burning hydrogen or it's burning helium because those have a a fingerprint of color when they burn. And then, oh, it's a little darker than it should be. Oh, it's redshifted, so it's leaving us. That's the fucking mind-blowing magic to me of astronomy. It's like, you're taking that little dot of white light and you're telling me everything? I think it's the way into physics for a lot of people. First of all, you have to understand that that is physics. Physics sometimes sounds like playing with a battery. Or math, a lot of math So much math. (laughs) But you're right. You know, the idea that we can see light from very close to the Big Bang, 380,000 years after the Big Bang, for example, is a tremendous thing to say. People will argue, you know, I'm on Twitter and things like that, and people say, well, how do you know about this Big Bang thing? The answer is because you can fucking see it. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Broadly speaking, because we can detect light from just very shortly after the Big Bang. You see the afterglow of it in the sky. That's astonishing. And if I could attempt the layperson that might understand, because maybe I have this wrong, but basically we are looking at certain stars and we know the distance of those stars. So we know that some of these stars are 5 billion light years away. So if you're looking at light, that had to leave where it came from 5 billion years ago, and you know the universe's five. well, it's not, what, 10 billion years? 13.8. So if you're looking at some source of light that traveled 13.5 billion years to get here, well, by God, you're looking at light that occurred right after the Big Bang, right? Yeah. That's bonkers, right? Crazy. Yeah. That's where I get fucked up. Okay, so let me ask you, because you're sitting here and you can tell me. The paradox that seems to be there is that 13 i can't use 13.8 because we weren't here yet but let's just say for shits and giggles earth was here (laughs) now when we're seeing light that's 13 billion years away 13 billion years ago we were way closer to that right because it emanated out from this big bang so if we rewind 13 billion years ago this light that we're saying took 13 billion years to get here at the speed of light we would have been right next to it in which case it would only been 10 light years away There's a lot to unpack there. One thing is, so 
You can ask, for example, you can see light, like you said, from the most distant galaxies from which the light has been traveling over 13 billion years. So we have images of galaxies. There's one called GNZ11, right, which is one of the oldest ones. <laughs> it's in the, the so-called Hubble deep field image, and it's over 13 billion years of light travel time. First of all, you could ask, where is that now? Right. Now, I can't remember the exact number, but it's something like 40 billion light years away that because the universe has been stretching. Okay. So oh the light God. journeyed. How do we know that? It's because the light has been stretched, the redshift. The way that I like to think about it is that the fabric of the universe itself is stretching and the light travels through it and it stretches and stretches and stretches. Can I do an auditory thing? Because I think this is what broke through for me. Yeah. Was your car's coming at you, right? And it goes... Uh-huh. Every time you hear a car approaching, uh-huh. the sound is a little higher pitch. The second it moves away from you, it's a little lower pitch because now the thing making the sound is moving away and the sound is getting to you a little bit slower. But as, as it was coming at you and making the sound, it had its speed plus the speed of sound. So it sounds a little higher pitched. Am I doing that justice? Yeah, there's another bit though. It's not quite that simple. <laughs> but just to get your notion around redshift, blue shift. But the reason it's not quite like that in cosmology is because if you try to work out the recession velocity of that thing, how fast is it going away from you, that galaxy yeah. from which the light took 13 billion years to reach us? Now it's receding far faster than the speed of light because of the stretch of the universe. Oh, right, right. Um, and so those galaxies, if something happens now, and now if the experts are listening, it's hard to define now in cosmology, right? Yeah, you can yeah, do it. Yeah. You can actually say, when was everything the same temperature in the universe? How's it cooled out? Whatever. But if something leaves from the, the galaxy now, it'll never reach us. Those galaxies are what's called beyond our horizon. And and actually, that horizon, because our universe is accelerating in its expansion, that horizon's closing in, in a sense. This great, wonderful vision of these galaxies, millions of galaxies that we can see with our telescopes, one by one, they're going beyond the horizon. They're dropping off. And in the future, you end up with a sky that's devoid of galaxies because no light can reach us. They're too far away and they're receding from us too fast. Although it's a long time, we live in a kind of a golden age when we can do cosmology and look out and see the galaxies. The only galaxies we'll be able to see in the far future are the ones that are stuck together with us, the local ones. Our closest one, Andromeda, the closest big galaxy is coming towards us. That's going to merge with ours. Basically, we'll be in a sky where there's only one galaxy to see. Oh, my God. It's crazy. I'm so disappointed in us as humans, and this makes me so proud of us. The new bit of astronomy that's just here now is what's called gravitational wave astronomy, which is, for the first time in human history, we have a second way of looking out into the universe. And they're ripples in the fabric of the universe itself, so-called gravitational waves, that were detected only recently. A friend of mine, the great Kip Thorne, got a Nobel Prize for essentially working out the theory of and then helping get built the gravitational wave detectors. So they're the things that are detecting, for example, the collisions of black holes. And ultimately... Those things, if we build a big enough one, which will be in space rather than on Earth, those things will detect the ripples from the Big Bang itself. Oh, my God. So we can see further back in time. Is this because a black hole doesn't emit any light, so we can't examine or learn anything from it, but it's bending the light traveling through the universe around it in a way that we can learn? So we have one image, which is in radio waves, actually, of a black hole at the center of a galaxy called M87, which is about 55 million light years away. And that one is six billion times the mass of the sun, that black hole. If you've seen Interstellar, it's one of my favorite films, that black hole was simulated 
Kip Thorne actually helped write the code, simulated using Einstein's theory. So it's not an artist's impression. And the image we have, which is a bit blurry, admittedly, of the one in M87, looks like that. Oh, that really? classic interstellar image of a black hole. Yeah, warping everything around it. Yeah. <laughs> Did we discover this principle during a total eclipse? Because we knew where a star should be, but then the star was in a little bit different place. And what we concluded was the sun itself was warping that light. It was one of the measurements that was made by Eddington, I think it was, that first confirmed that Einstein was on the right track with his theory of general relativity. But general relativity, 1915... That was published. You know, at school, we learn it's a force between things. There's two massive things, and there's a force between them, and there the is. The moon and the earth. The moon and the earth. But actually, Einstein proposed that it's not. What it is, is the response of things like you and me, and the moon, and stars and planets, to the distortion of the fabric of the universe. So, stuff, anything, matter, energy, stars, planets, distort the fabric of the universe and curve it and bend it. If you say, why is the moon orbiting the earth? Einstein will say, it's going in a straight line over a curved and distorted fabric. Oh my God, I didn't know that till just now. This is so that's, thrilling. That's I was curious how the fuck gravity was I'm not scared. Newtonian. That's why light bends. That's what yeah. you're referring to. Why would light bend if you're Newton? Because light has got no mass, so why does it feel Right, because for a regular theory of gravity, the Newtonian law of gravity would have said it would need mass to be pulled yeah. by other mass, right? And you can kind of budge it and say, well, E equals mc squared and things. But actually, you can see if what really is happening is things are responding to the curvature of the fabric of the universe, then a light ray responds in the same way as anything else. Let's say I've got a tennis ball in my hand and a laser. So you imagine that in the room that you're in now. And I fire the laser and I drop the ball. Actually, if the Earth were, I'm going to say, if the Earth were flat, right, so it isn't, but if the yeah, Earth yeah. were flat, then the light would drop and hit the ground at the same time as the ball. It falls at the same rate. It's just that light's going so fast that by the time the ball's hit the ground, it's gone. Right. Because it's going at 186,000 miles a second, so it's missed the Earth. It does fall at the same rate because it's going through the same curve. The same warped mm. fabric. Oh, my God. And wow. it's space and time as well that are warped. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by ZipRecruiter. Mmm, ZipRecruiter. With St. Patty's Day around the corner, here's a random fun fact. The chances of finding a four-leaf clover are 1 in 10,000. <gasps> yeah, very limited edition. You'd have to be pretty lucky to find one. Almost as lucky as Kristen finding a parking spot. And there's always one right at the front somehow. Fortunately, if you're hiring, you don't need luck to find top talent. You just need ZipRecruiter. And you can try it free right now at ZipRecruiter.com DAX. No rainbows or gimmicks. ZipRecruiter leads you to a pot of gold, a.k.a. top talent every time. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology starts showing you quality candidates immediately. You can also invite your top choices to apply to encourage them to apply sooner. If you're even just a bit curious about how ZipRecruiter can help you, today's your lucky day. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Once again, try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash DAX. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Tap the banner to learn more. We are supported by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Monica, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? I want to say I would write and read my New Year's resolution. Yeah, uh, I would too. That would yeah. be the same. 
The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com DAX today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot DAX. We are supported by Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can do much more than build a website. You can also sell custom merch. Guys, this is what we do on Squarespace. We have a merch team, and we offer it all on a website beautifully built by WobbyWob on Squarespace. Simply design your products, and production, inventory, and shipping are all handled for you. With Squarespace, it doesn't matter what you sell, physical goods, digital products, services, they have all the tools you need to start selling online. Just take one of their professional website templates, then customize the look, update the content, and add features to fit your unique needs. You can make any Squarespace template do what you want so you can stand out online on any device. For a free trial, just head to squarespace.com DAX. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code DAX to save 10% on your first purchase of a website or domain. Also, Einstein predicted, and now we use it in our technology, so GPS for satellite navigation, for example, it turns out that time passes more slowly for someone sat close to something like the Earth than it does for someone at a higher altitude. You're out of the warping. What? Let's spend a minute on that. Okay, so time, the oldest version I remember is that at one point they had two atomic clocks. They (laughs) cannot be made different. And they sync these clocks, and then on one of the missions up to uh, orbit, they put the atomic clock, its partner on there, and when it returned to Earth, it was off. Oh, you mean was not matching? Was not matching any longer. And in fact, it was earlier. Let's say they were set to 12 exactly, and they brought it back at 1 exactly. Well, the one that went to space says 12.59 instead of 1. So they proved that this is true. Yeah, and it's not something to do with the clock. It's time. So the clock's measuring time correctly in its own, you know, frame of reference where it is. But time is passing at different rates. It's one of the things that I teach in at Manchester. You make this kindergarten level up. This is Einstein. This is back in 1905, so-called special relativity. His theory is about the distance between events. So it's a big deal that you have to kind of unpack it. There's an idea that an event is something that happens in space and time. So it happens somewhere and somewhere. So I click my fingers. And another event would be click them again. Einstein introduces the idea of a distance between those events in space and time. So it's not just a time difference and the distance in space between them. It's a mixed up kind of thing. And the distance between them, you have to say, what path do I take between those events? And if I carried a clock along that path, then that would be the distance, right? So that's the time. All at the speed of light, that's the constant? Well, so so like, let's say that I set off now and I leave here and I fly to New York and fly back again. One event is the same bite. Yeah. And the next event is when we come back and shake hands and go, hello, again. Yeah. So there's two events. 
Um, the distance that I have travelled between those two events is different to the distance you have travelled. Right. right. Which is kind of obvious sure. in a way. Yeah, yeah. But actually, that distance is measured by a clock I carry with me. That's the key thing. That's the great insight of Einstein. So if we synchronise our perfect watches now together, and then I go off to New York and back, it's not surprising that my watch will have measured a different time difference than yours. Because all it measured is the distance we've travelled between those two events in space-time. Wow. And that's it. That wouldn't happen, though, here. You have to leave. Oh, no, no, it would happen. It would happen if I left here and I went to the shop. It would. But it would be the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest difference. And that's because the actual space difference between what you two did in that time. No, it's to do with the fact that space and time are kind of mixed together. Um, and so the thing that really matters... Right, Einstein discovered yeah. is the distance in space-time between events. And that's different for different people because they take different paths. And the distance oh, I... is measured in seconds. So that's why time runs at different rates. I think I can think of an analogy, which is a star emits light and it emits it at a time, right? And it can either travel straight to us mm -hmm. or it can travel through the path of the sun, which has this great bend yeah. in gravity. Mm -hmm. And so when it arrives, it will arrive later than the one that went directly there. <laughs> There's some more stuff going on. Yeah, there. yeah, okay, okay. You okay. could spend 400 hours yeah, 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 on yeah, just yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give you yeah. one crazy thing. The last okay. crazy thing I'll say. If you ask what the distance between events is, or the time that passes for the light beam, from the perspective of the light beam, right. between being emitted in the Andromeda galaxy, let's say, and received and hitting your eye here, that's an event. Mm -hmm. That distance for the light beam is actually zero. So what? no time passes for a light beam, which is really, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Whenever they talk about if a human theoretically traveled at the speed of light. No time would pass. No time would pass, right? And then the people on Earth where you departed from would all have gotten old and died. Yeah, so close to the speed of light, that really works. So if you, if you go off in a rocket, you know, 99.999% the speed of light or something, and then come back to the Earth. You can come back at any point in the future. You could come back after 100 years or 1,000 years or 10,000 years or a million years just because you're taking actually a shorter path between those events, which is you leaving Earth and you returning. Yeah. It actually turns out to be shorter. So if you go flying off close to the speed of light and come back, your watch might have said, I've only been gone three months, and you get back on the Earth and 10 million years can have oh passed. Oh, my God. God. So you can time travel into the future <laughs> yes. by doing that. Okay, so yes, our current physics says you can time travel into the future. I'd put it stronger than that because it's relativity. So we're pretty damn sure that that's Okay, true. so yes, I'm just, I'll say, no one's done it, but so theoretically. Well, no, we, no, we are doing it. Obviously, we're doing it now, right? We're traveling into the future at one second per second. And it's certainly true that the GPS satellite is a good example, actually, because time passes at a different rate on the satellite to us. So it's gone into the future at a different rate. That's what that means, right? Time's passing at a different rate. And it actually turns out to be about 30,000 nanoseconds per day. A nanosecond is 1,000 millionths of a second. Wow. But the reason I say it like that is because light travels one foot per nanosecond, give or take. And so 30,000 nanoseconds for the GPS system is a 30,000 feet position problem. Okay. If you don't correct for it, you'd rack up tens of thousands of feet per day error. And it'd be yeah, Because useless. time's passing at a different rate. Well, because it's going 17,500 miles an hour, and we're going 1,000 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, and at high altitude. Right. So it all makes a difference.
Okay. We got a bit heavy there. Didn't no, we? I, love that. Physics right. I love it. So the only reason I set up that we know that you can time travel into the future, this is a thought I've had many times. I don't think we will ever discover how to time travel back in time because if we did ever discover that, surely someone would have arrived with a technology that would get us out of the climate crisis. So the only two conclusions I have is either they died before they got that technology or that technology doesn't ever become possible. Yeah. What do you think of that it's a really It's a great question, actually. There's a, again, I mentioned Kip Thorne earlier. He wrote a great book called Black Holes and Time Warps, which was back in the 80s, I think he wrote it, but it's a, still a fantastic book. And he does talk about time machines into the past, which another way to talk about these things, they're called wormholes, right? If you're a science fiction fan, you know about wormholes which connect different regions of the universe to each other and would allow you, if they existed, to take shortcuts. So it's like going from here to Sydney. We could drill a big tunnel or we can go around the surface of the Earth or we can take a shortcut. Well, a shortcut in space and time does allow you to go back into the past, right? So the, the question in physics becomes, do those things exist? And the answer is, in Einstein's theory alone, they do. You can conceive of those geometries of space-time but the consensus is that even if you try to send one bit of information through anything, then you collapse them. So they're unstable. And fundamentally, you can't traverse them or send signals through them. But it's still not 100% been proved that that's true. Right. So Stephen Hawking once wrote a paper called The Chronology Protection Conjecture. Again, you guys have terrible branding problems. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> this conjecture was that whatever the fundamental laws of physics are that we don't understand at the moment, then they will prevent time travel into the past. But kind of the reason that you said that it's a paradoxical universe, and every indication is that that's true, it's getting more interesting now because we could talk about it, but I do some work on black holes and there's a lot of work going on on black holes at the moment. And in particular, questions about what happens to stuff that goes in. Does it ever get out again? And there are wormholes beginning to appear in the explanation. We now think, by the way, that everything that goes in, the information in it comes out again. So how does something get out of something that nothing can escape from, right? <laughs> right. And it does seem like it may be that some kind of wormhole-like structures sort of open up. So it seems that they are possibly relevant to our understanding of the universe, but no one really fully understands. But if gravity isn't this force that one object with mass exerts on another object with mass, and the black hole, as I understand it, is right, once a star it starts by pulling hydrogen together so forcefully that it creates helium, then the helium pulls itself so hard it starts fusing into carbon, ultimately diamond or something, it can happen. And then there's so much mass and so much force, it just collapses into itself. And so I've always thought of that in terms of gravity, of mass. So now with what you just taught me, what's really happening is it's divoting the fabric so extremely Exactly. Oh, my God. Uh, so exactly. then, yeah, what's on the bottom yeah, of the, the cone? Ah, uh, well, so it depends whether it's spinning or not. So let's take a non-spinning black hole yeah. called the Schwarzschild black hole. Carl Schwarzschild, by the way, was the first exact solution of Einstein's equations. So Einstein published this theory, the fabric of the universe thing, general relativity. Yeah. And just a month or so later, Carl Schwarzschild, who was on the Russian front in the war, right, the First World War, in his spare time, <laughs> came up with the first solution of Einstein's equations. And it's the one that describes a black hole that's not spinning. 
And in there, the first thing you see is this thing called the event horizon, which everyone will have heard of. Yeah. What is that? That's the point of no return. If you go inside, cross that bit of space, in there, what actually happens is this thing called the singularity, which everyone may have heard of, but actually it's the end of time. So <laughs> Monica just grabbed her face for the listener. In that black hole, you go in and the end of time awaits. So that's what it is. So it's a moment in time. It's not a place in space, actually. You know, you tend to think, oh, we'll go in and we'll get crushed to a dot in the middle. But really, the right way to think about it is you go in and meet the end of time. You freeze? The way that works is that you talked about the distortion of space and time, as you rightly said. Yeah. That's what's happening. And actually what happens from the outside point of view is that space and time swap roles on the event horizon. It's really kind of interesting. So space becomes time and time becomes space. So ultimately, <laughs> what happens in the middle is that, yeah, it's not like Doctor Who, right? If you this watch is that. crazy. In the middle, you get the end of time. One way of thinking, why can't I get out? It's like I could say to you, run away from tomorrow. Oh. Which direction? Are you going to run yeah, to escape yeah, yeah. tomorrow? Yeah. You can't. It gets weirder in a spinning black hole. It's called a Kerr black hole. That was the 1960s by the time the spinning black hole solution was found. So it's 50 years later. I'll just say one thing to you. If the black hole existed forever, so it didn't form from a star collapsing, then the geometry inside has got an infinite number of universes inside. Isn't that weird? I'm it's lost. so I'm, curved. You just left me. The space time is so curved up. That, yeah, so it's completely <laughs> crazy. Time and space. Your mom's your dad, your dad's your mom. <laughs> this is fascinating. Oh, wow. I'm excited to hear you say that. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand any of it, but it's yeah. so fascinating. There's a great Indian mathematician, Chandrasekhar, and uh, he actually lived a long time. He died in the 80s, but he was around at the time as well. And he said, this solution, these geometries inside black holes, which are just these perfect bits of mathematics. He said that it was like shuddering before the beautiful because this mathematics describes infinitely complex geometry inside the simplest of things. Okay, so the other thing I find really fascinating, and again, I learned this probably in that Oppenheimer book, which is the days of speaking about physics pretty much ended with Newton. Like Newton could explain to you this law he's proposing in words in English. He probably wouldn't, though. I don't think he was very nice. He wasn't. He <laughs> wouldn't have taken the wouldn't, time. He wouldn't but, have done this. And I'm glad he wouldn't have. He had bigger fish to fry. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, there's a bazillion, whether they're apocryphal or not, stories of Einstein trying to explain things. And he said, you know, one of the answers was, could you explain the theory of relativity? And he said, I can't, because what if you didn't know what milk was. And I said, well, I went to this farm and had a great glass of milk. What's milk? Oh, it's white. Oh, like clouds? Yes. <laughs> like, I don't know what clouds are. It, you just, you abstract mm -hmm. it so much that you're, you're no longer talking about anything. All of this stuff he's trying to relay to us doesn't exist outside of mathematics. All of these things are just incredibly complicated equations that fellow physicists can look at and they read it, but English is an incomplete symbol system for us to comprehend what is being discovered. And can I just add, Oppenheimer's gift was he was one of the few physicists who was not a brilliant mathematician, but he was actually great at articulating in language physics. And you know, he was the first, by the way, with someone called Snyder, 
to show that stars under certain circumstances would collapse to form a black hole. They did that before the war. Really? So it's a very, very famous paper by Oppenheimer and Schneider. They're one of the first papers on black holes, actually. But yeah, I mean, Newton would have struggled. If you really drill down, as you said, into Newton's law of gravity, it says, well, there's a force between these things. And you go, well, why is there a force? It seems that if you just move the sun away from the Earth, if you could do that, then the force would change instantly. And is that right? And it's a quote from him. He said, well, ultimately, it's down to God. He bailed. He bailed. It's a yeah. model. It's a way of allowing you to calculate amazing things. I mean, Einstein's theory to this day, over 100 years, is still describing the collisions between black holes that we see using these gravitational wave detectors, 21st century technology, and it's still getting it right. Is he the greatest? It's certainly one of, but you know, in social science and history, people object to the, they call it the great man theory because they're oh, usually yeah. men in the, those days, right? And I think that's right, standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, Einstein was using mathematical tools that have been developed throughout the 19th century. And people say that his first bit, special relativity, that was 1905, that's E equals MC squared. People say that was in the air, right? A lot of people were around that kind of theory at the time. But this theory of gravity that he came up with in 1915 that we've just been talking about. That, I think most people that say, just where did that come from? This story, and I think it's true because he told it, was that he was looking at this man, this bloke, (laughs) working on a roof from his office, and he was looking at him. And he thought, if he falls off the roof, (laughs) then on the way down, he won't experience gravity at all. He'll experience it when he hits the ground, but (laughs) on his way down. And of course, we know that now. If you look at astronauts in the space station, they're falling towards the Earth with the space station. But it looks as though gravity's gone. And he realised that's really profound. It's called the equivalence principle. It's the heart of relativity, that you can remove it by falling. That's a weird force. And that was his way in. So when you say the astronauts on the space station are falling... Basically, the space station's going 17,500 miles an hour, and it's falling at the exact same rate that the Earth is curving. So it's falling, but it just never hits the Earth because it's curved. Yeah, that's a free fall, it's called. Right, there's no perception of gravity. And it's really weird, because if you think then, so you say, well, so the astronaut has a coffee cup or whatever it is, and and let's go, it doesn't move. (laughs) It stays there. Yeah. Einstein would say it's because there are no forces acting. Gravity's gone. It's been cancelled by the falling. So why does everything stay where the astronaut leaves it? Because why not? There are no forces. Yeah. That's really deep. It can't break inertia because it's already... Yeah, Newton has an explanation for that. It's because there's different kinds of mass. There's the one that tells you what the force is between things and one is how hard it is to push things and they all cancel out. With black holes, it gets really interesting because you go across the event horizon. If you free fall through, it doesn't seem to be there. We can talk about all that. That's called the information paradox and off we go, but we'll probably stop. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, to get to your point, Einstein was brilliant because he thought really simply. And he wasn't great at math. The math is difficult in general relativity. But the original thought is almost childlike, not childish. It's what I said right at the start. He's thinking, I'm not going to kid myself about this. There's something interesting about that. And I'm not going to let it go. He was a genius because he kept going. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. 
We are supported by The Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. For a start, the exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender 110's legendary capability lets you go further and do more, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Its durability has been tested to the extreme. It can handle your equipment too, as the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Explore with greater confidence with powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, an award-winning infotainment system, and innovative camera technologies. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.5% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC. Terms apply. We are supported by HelloFresh. You know, there are days when it's really hard to decide what to eat. You stare blankly into the fridge for what feels like hours with no success. And you end up hangry. Well, I've got a solution. HelloFresh, they deliver fresh ingredients and chef-curated recipes straight to your home. And they even take care of the meal planning. I love it because I always text Callie, what should I eat for dinner? Okay, you ask her a lot. Uh, yeah, because I get stressed and overwhelmed. And she doesn't know. And so HelloFresh is so great if I have it because then it's all there. I don't have to make any decisions. Well, what did you get into last night? Ooh, last night I had a, you know I love prosciutto. Mm-hmm. I had, Who doesn't? Oh, so good. I had a prosciutto-wrapped chicken and it had a truffle chive mashed potatoes and Ooh. a lemony broccoli. It was delicious. Oh, my goodness. Go to HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE and use the code DAXFREE for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life. Available for a limited time at HelloFresh.com slash DAXFREE with the code DAXFREE. I often come across something where I go, mm-hmm, I've heard the explanation. And for me, something's missing. <laughs> There's a lot of ways that can happen, not just like in a physics sense, but just often I feel, hmm, something's missing from this explanation. I love that feeling. It's like very motivating. No, it's exactly the way to think. It means that you don't understand it, but that's fine. But often it means that the people who've told you that don't understand it either. I don't know if this will annoy you, but this is my recent one. So I'm watching TV with my wife. The character's dying. She's young. It's sad. They're talking about where she'll go next. You know, will she live on in some other plane? And it just crossed my mind. We are very, very eager and open to imagining a life that doesn't end, whether that's in heaven, on an energy plane, whatever it is, that's a very easy concept for us to embrace, that we will continue on forever. And then I just thought, no one seems that fascinated with the fact that we didn't exist. 
<laughs> yeah. Everyone's comfortable with the notion that they didn't exist for you, Monica, 34 years ago. You didn't exist. You're at peace with that. But the notion that you won't exist in 30 yeah. more years or 80 more years, that's a paradox. Yeah, Bertrand Russell said something really similar, the great philosopher. So you're in great company with that. Thought. Oh, okay, okay. He said a similar thing. He said, you know, the, the fact that I didn't exist before I was born hasn't bothered me in the slightest. So I don't know why people get hung up with death. Well, because we know biology. We know, like, how the start happened, but we don't have an answer to the end. I mean, people think they do. But even if you're an atheist like me, and sure, I understand the biology, this vessel will at some point stop functioning and go into the ground. But I can at least imagine that my soul, my spirit, my consciousness transforms into something. I can imagine that quite easily. I cannot imagine the fact that I didn't exist, that this soul that I think may oh. go on in perpetuity wasn't here. So then 30 minutes later in the same show, I thought to myself, oh my God, Maybe my parents didn't just pass on genetic material to me. Maybe I got their consciousness. Like maybe the spirit, the soul, the whatever I am, whatever is asking this question is actually what was passed on from my dad. And then I started thinking, well, that's a little bit like reincarnation. If you think of reincarnation, you're going to come back and you're going to try again until you learn your lessons. And I thought, well, this is interesting. My father learned some lessons. He passed on his soul to me or an extension of his soul. And now I have a shot to take the ball from where he left it and but learn some more shit. But he was still alive. Yeah, so it doesn't have to go away for him to ignite it in me, let's just huh. say. We passed on information, didn't it? Probably the most cutting-edge way of thinking about reality in theoretical physics at the moment is about an information sense. Actually, space and time that we've talked about, it, we're now talking about them emerging from a deeper structure, which is more properly thought about in terms of information. So what you're saying is that, I think, is that it's true that your parents live on in you through the information. The DNA strand. Well, there's that, and the, but there's also, you know, ideas and, and the way you were brought up and those things. That's the way I'd think about it. And it's actually quite interesting because I was thinking about what our responsibility should be, right? How do we deal with this fact that we live these finite lives? Yeah. It's part of the motivation for a lot of great and terrible things that we do as humans is trying to deal with that fact, isn't it, that we're finite. Our responsibility is to pass that information and indeed the world on to the next generation mm -hmm. because of the infinite possibility that exists. This unbroken chain of life. But you have a son, right? Yeah. I imagine you're like me and you can imagine a future where you're lying on your deathbed and you will look into your son's face and you will actually, not your body, you'll go, oh, I'm still here. I'd try to define it if I had to, in terms of information, right, bits. So obviously there's a part of you in them in the sense that you've helped craft them. Yeah. And there is an element of your character in them. And I think that's actually not a trivial thing to say. It's an important thing to say. Because it can sound quite mystical, can't it? But actually, if you follow that through... You think about what we're doing now, you know, obviously, as we speak in parts of the world, there's tremendously destruction, which we're seeing every day on the news. The thing that really concerns me is that it seems that many of us don't realise that what you've said is almost the purpose of our existence. The purpose of our existence is to pass on. And I'll just add, I wasn't around my dad. I fight it, but our spirit is nearly identical, and that happened in the absence of him. I think that's why I'm even more inclined to believe that. What I would say is that we don't understand consciousness. It's the most complex thing in the universe, right? That, that's clear. And I think everyone would agree with that statement. Yes. I think it's a property of physical things. So it emerges from 
atoms, ultimately, in a very complex way that we don't understand. But I don't see anything there that suggests new physics, new laws of nature. Well, there is one new one. I imagine you grew up with Darwinian evolution and then perhaps Dawkins' selfish gene. That genome wasn't part of that conversation when I was going to college. So our recent discovery that the epigenome can also get passed on, how you will read the DNA sequence, that's pretty mind-melding. That's like a new, whoa. It's complex. It is. And you're right. I mean, it's another example of what we talked about earlier, that as our knowledge increases, then the world that we see is more beautiful. Bigger, more complex. But I mean, I tend to recoil, as you can see, from the idea of... Something mystical. Me too. Well, I think what we're saying is we're putting it in the don't know box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because it's a complex physical system. So I don't think there's anything mystical about it, but it's in that wonderful box that there's something we don't know. And I tend to stop there. People say to me, you know, what happened before the Big Bang? We don't even know if the universe had a beginning in time, right? Because right, we, right. we don't know what time is, actually. <laughs> so, you know, at a fundamental level. Often people will go, so there's room for this, that, and the other. And I just go, no, I, I've just said I don't know. And that's got a full stop after it. I agree with you. There's a great deal, obviously, about consciousness we don't understand. Full stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and then yeah, I'm yeah, stopping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're getting into now this theoretical, but I push back heavily against the notion of no free will. The theory is if we knew the location, the speed, the everything to know about every atom in the universe, some supercomputer would be able to predict what happens next. So ultimately, we could predict the future if all that info was known. So my first question is, do you think that's true? So... In principle, that is one of the basic assumptions in physics. And I should say, not to drag everything back to black holes, but one of the great mysteries with black holes, which has stimulated a lot of research, is that Stephen Hawking initially thought that black holes destroy information. If they destroy information, then what you said is not true, because we've lost information. Mm. So if there are objects in the universe that destroy information, which we thought Mm. black holes might be, then determinism is not possible there because you've lost you you, obviously you can't even tell there was a black hole there because all there is is a load of radiation with no information about what it came from now it turns out that by really strongly suspecting that's not right we have been led towards what's called the theory of quantum gravity just in the last couple of years so the answer to your question is it's an assumption that has survived even the fact that black holes are supposed to eat stuff and the end of time's in the middle and nothing's supposed (laughs) to come out it actually turns out that's not the case information is conserved but to me the hiccup is at least my understanding of quantum mechanics is all of them are probability predictions yeah they're not declarations. but the probabilities it evolved deterministically which is probably too complex to say the thing called the wave function which is the description of something could be you it could be a black hole it could be the universe it could be a single particle. It's a big thing. Yeah. And broadly speaking, we think the universe has a wave function. So it's all those probabilities. If you make a measurement, so you say, where is something? Then you're right. Quantum mechanics will say it's a 20% chance it's over there and a 10% chance over there. But that all evolves deterministically and information is conserved in that as that changes through time. There is a future where it's not a probability prediction, but it's an actual 
it'll be here. This is a huge debate about the meaning of quantum mechanics, which is another thing. Yeah. But broadly speaking, I think most people now accept this wave function, which is a collection of all the probabilities as reality, as the real thing. That's not everyone thinks that. There's still room for interpretation in the theory. But broadly speaking, a lot of physicists think that. To go to your point, we operate under the assumption, and it served us very well, even in black holes, that information is not destroyed. So, as you said, free will doesn't exist in that universe, mm. right? With the caveat, there'll be neuroscientists shouting at the podcast now, <laughs> with the caveat that we don't understand what will is. Right, yeah. right. So I'm being a physicist here. Everything we're saying, ultimately, too, you have to remind yourself, is our human experience of all these things we're explaining. We're the observer. You know, it's really interesting. It goes all the way back to the start of what you said about what physics and chemistry and biology. And, and I'd said, you know, biology, we don't explain it in terms of fundamental physics. We might be in danger of making one of those so-called category errors here. We're trying to deduce things about our behavior, the human experience, from fundamental physics yeah. about information theory yeah. and things like that. I'm just inclined to think us as animals, even if you know exactly my biochemistry at all moments and you know that I have this percentage of serotonin, this of dopamine, I still think not a chance. I don't think humans are predictable. I think you could say like 80%. I mean, some of it's about our experience though, isn't it? As well, I've heard people say this. It's like, why do you care? Yeah, sure, sure. If you think you have free will and you live your life, and it really feels like you're making these choices. If it's true that some omnipotent being with this massive quantum computer could actually sit there and predict what you're going to be doing tomorrow, does that actually matter? Exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure it does, because yeah. we're talking about our experience, aren't we, and our, and our emotional experience of living. It's true. If mine were scripted prior to my birth, and I found that out at the end, I certainly couldn't tell. I felt like I was making a lot of decisions and aiming my boat in a lot of directions. Yeah. I mean, we could then get into, there's all these questions about whether we live in a simulation, right? Well, that would have been my... we got to do yeah. maybe a part two <laughs> yeah, if you yeah, yeah. that. We talk about it a lot on here. We're pretty obsessed with the simulation. It's really becoming interesting, the foundation of these ideas, because information theory, which is what we're really talking about here, quantum computing, how quantum information works... That's all being driven by two things, which is really fascinating. One is actually trying to build quantum computers, which are things that people have in labs and they will be very useful and we're trying to build them. The other thing is black hole research, which is really, it's interrelated in ways that nobody could possibly imagine. They're, they're really similar questions that are being asked about information and how it's distributed in space and time. What is the hurdle with black hole research? Is it that it's not emitting any information? Or is it that we can't process the data we collect on it? It was really simple. It was a... Stephen Hawking made his calculation of um, Hawking radiation, which is the black hole. It's got a temperature, it radiates, right? Just like a coal, a hot coal. Uh -huh. And that means that over time it'll evaporate away. And his calculation that he did, which no one could see anything wrong with for years, decades, said that the radiation that is left has no information, no structure that reflects what fell in. Now, in the last few years, it's been shown that there was something very subtle, extra, that he missed, not surprisingly, in his calculation, which does look like wormholes and things, mm. a different kind of weird geometries of space-time. Mm. But it ultimately seems that the information is coming out, but in a way that's what we call hugely non-local. So this information seems to be stored with no regard for distances in space and time and past and future. And it seems to be there's a different description of the world. And that's why you might have heard people say the world's a hologram. It turns out that you can write down 
physicists always say in some sense, and the reason they say in some sense is because the words aren't present yet and no one really has worked out what it actually means, this mathematics. So sure, I'll sure. say it though. Yeah, or it's kind of like saying it can be argued. Yeah, because it's like <laughs> a conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah, like yeah. to think it's because I'm struggling to explain it to me and more. So it's not, it's because I don't understand what I, I don't understand it and neither does anybody else, yeah, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but in some sense, you can describe the world and it would be this room now. So for example, everything that's going on in here and our conversation, all those things, you can describe it with a theory, some mathematics that lives on a surface surrounding it. Only that. The whole thing can be written in what we call a dual way, an equivalent way as some other theory, which has not got space in it, really. It's just all this stuff, quantum mechanics going on on a surface. And that's a hologram. Does that have anything to do with... we got to talk about your live show. I'm sorry, but it was so rare to have... This is all this in is, it. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Okay, because the thing I trip out on all the time is my understanding of an atom, right, is you have a proton and electron spinning around. So what you have the bulk of there in an atom is space, empty space, yeah. right? And that the wall behind you is 99.99999% empty. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Is that related to the hologram theory at all? It's saying that what we knew from way back in the 70s, actually, is that if you look at a black hole and you say, how much information can you contain within it? Then the amount of information in it is proportional to the surface area of the black hole. Mm -hmm. That's really weird. If you said in this room we're in now, if it was a library and we could fill it with books, how much information can you fit? Mm -hmm. And you'd say, well, it's to do with the volume of the room. It's how many books I can fit in. But at a fundamental level, it seems that nature says that's a vast overestimate of the amount of information that can be stored in this room, in this space. It's as if you can only paper the outside of the room with the books. And that's huh. telling us something very, very, very deep about the structure of the universe. Was that being hinted at in Interstellar? They were like papering the walls. Yeah. yeah and you hear this in Interstellar. They kind of hid it away, but it's still there. They talk about the quantum information uh -huh. in the black hole. But is the volume of this room, if we wanted to answer that, couldn't we say the amount of atoms that would fit in it? You could. You're saying is there some smallest structure in the out of which reality is made that can store some information. Yeah, that, yeah. And it turns out that it is. So this room, I could tell you that the maximum this room could store would be if it was a black hole with the radius of this room. And the amount of information would be exactly equal to, actually, the surface area of the room in what's called Planck units. So not the internal volume, Just but the surface, the surface. So it's like all the bits are but tiled only for on black the surface holes. in some way. Uh, no, well, I keep saying black holes. The reason it's important in this discussion is it's the thing that stores the maximum amount of information. Because it has the, the most gravity? Well, I mean, because we don't really know, actually. Put it this way. In Einstein's theory, the theory of space-time, the geometry, a black hole is described as pure geometry, nothing else. So there's only space and time there. Mm. And yet it stores information. So that should bother you because you go, mm. what do you mean? If there's only what's space storing? and time, yeah. what's storing it? And at some point there is no time. Yeah, in no. the middle. So what it does seem to be is the study of these things telling us that space and time are made of smaller things, like atoms of space and time. We don't know what they are. We know how big they are which is kind of interesting, this thing called a Planck length. But we don't know much more than that. Mm. So we're on the edge of this new understanding. Einstein had this great saying, and Sean Carroll, I don't know if you've spoken to Sean Carroll, he's a great physicist, Caltech. And he wrote a book called Something Deeply Hidden. And it was a quote from Einstein where he said, if you gaze at nature carefully enough, and these black holes are real things in the sky, right? So you look at them, then you can glimpse something deeply hidden, mm. which is the underlying structure of reality. 
basically. Mm. And that's what these things are, are telling us. So reality is weirder than we could have possibly imagined, <laughs> is the point. Reality is stranger than fiction, mm -hmm. they say. <laughs> they do say that. Interstellar is interesting. So it was written, you know, Kit Thorne initially came up with the idea. It's, it's probably two decades ago, and it was made 10 years ago, right? Yeah. In that last 10 years since that film, there's been incredible progress. Mm. So there are hints of stuff in that film. But actually, we understand a ton more now. And just in the 10 years? Things. In 10 years, yeah. What's driving the understanding? It was thought, theoretical leaps that certain people have made. Oh. And this holographic thing has played a key role mm. in that. Okay, so you take this show on the road. Which I want to see. You're in you're in LA in June. I watched a bit of it. So you have this enormous backdrop behind you. And you're showing us just the beauty, the magnitude, the scope of the universe. So it's a very visual experience, yeah? Yeah. It was designed, I should say, the show in the UK where I'm kind of better known. It's designed for arenas. So it goes into things like the O2 and Wembley Arena. And so the screens are huge. It was 30 meters by 10 meters or something. It's vast. As big as much as you can fit in the O2 90 arena. 90 feet by 30 feet, yes. Uh, yeah, 90, 100 <laughs> feet. 100 <laughs> feet wide. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it comes in four trucks. It's back to rock and roll. It's great. So I feel like a rock star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like Led Zepp touring sure. in the 70s. You know? <laughs> got these tour buses. And, and so we designed for that. So in the US, all we do is we get as much of the LED as we can and cram it into whatever theater I think there's enough people in the US who know who I am to come and see it. It starts with that question I started with earlier, which is that what does it mean to live a fragile, finite life in an infinite, eternal universe? And it goes through the history of the universe, history of life. Let's speculate about the probability life exists elsewhere, how many civilizations may there be out there in our galaxy, for example, which is really important because I think it may be on average one per galaxy, which is an extremely important thing to know because if we mess this up, which is a strong part of this show, ultimately, if we, if we mess this up here, we might be responsible for destroying meaning in a galaxy forever. Imagine if we're the only place where atoms have come together to think, which is what yeah. we've been talking about. And then we mess it up. We just, just through inaction or deliberate action, Oppenheimer, we just destroy it. So there's an element of that. Well, I like really quick. It starts with enormous gratitude, which is like the probability of this conversation is in the billionth to the billionth power. How special and lucky are we? There's hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, right? Yeah. And among those, we're the only one, probably. Well, it's, it's a reasonable guess, given that it took four billion years, give or take, on this planet to go from a, the origin of life to anything that can write a symphony, right? Or <laughs> paint or have a conversation like this. That's a third of the age of the universe. You're right, there are, you know, 400 billion suns and countless billions of planets. But how many of those have been stable enough for 4 billion years to allow this remarkable evolution yeah. from single cells to consciousness? It might be very few. So that's a strong element of the show, is trying to reconcile these ideas because I firmly believe we're physically insignificant, obviously, as you just said. Hundreds yeah. of billions of suns, trillions of galaxies. Also, I think that we're remarkably valuable for the reason that you said again, that we're very lucky to be here. And I, I like the idea, and I explore this in the show, that somewhere in between those two ideas that seem not to fit together is the truth. Right? There's something in that grey no-man's land, or whatever you call it, between ideas that seem to be contradictory where the actual answer to, to what it means to be human lies. 
Uh, again, I say I don't know. It, it, I mean, I'm giving it one of my jokes away, but I say to the audience, if I knew, right, I'd charge more for tickets. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, right? yeah, for sure. I'd be some one of those guru <laughs> people. I'm not starting a religion up here. I don't know, right? But what I try to do is show these wonderful images of, from the Hubble Space Telescope, Cassini Space Probe, and so on. Talk about black holes. I have a beautiful simulation of a black hole that I use the code from Interstellar, actually. But also, I'm trying to get the audience to come to their own conclusion about what all this means. I have to imagine the visual aids help enormously with these very complex concepts. It's not a lecture at these prices, I always say. No, no, no. <laughs> Obviously, it's a show. Well, I think, of more, yeah. I think more of it is like when I was a kid, I would go to the planetarium in Michigan and see like the laser light show. It's entertaining and visually spectacular because it's made for arenas, right? So it's obviously, and there's a lot of music in it. As I said, it's actually turned out to be mainly classical music. And we've got a plan actually to do it with an orchestra. So oh, I can also do it prog yeah, rock yeah, like yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> Not only content with four trucks, I want 150 pieces in the orchestra as well. Ultimately, you're supposed to think when you leave and just look at the world a bit differently and, and have an emotional response to these discoveries that we've made. And that's what they demand. Yeah, I just think the more often you allow someone to point out how spectacular the whole thing is, and you step out of whatever my daily fucking agenda is and my angst over every menial thing, like, to just take a second. You get it when you stargaze. If you're lucky enough to have gone on vacation somewhere where really, really you get, in, you know, the full brunt of the stars, it's so pleasurable. We just had it, like, yeah. a year and a half ago. We were in Sedona. Every night for two hours, we would lay outside. I was getting pessimistic that I've been so overstimulated that I'm ruined permanently. And no, we would lay out there, and it's almost like you're just sucking up the radiation of the whole thing. There's yeah. something connective <laughs> about it that feels really special. I don't know. I hate to be corny about it, but it like gave me meaning every night I did yeah. that. Yeah, which is strange, isn't it? That contemplate in the infinite, vast universe actually does, I believe, I agree with you, give you meaning. You can understand the meaning of your life better, at least if you think about that. Well, Brian, I appreciate that you're... Um, I mean, again, I was critical of the packaging and branding of physics, but you're really doing everything in your power to, yeah, to make, make it, it exciting cool. and sexy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, and I'm horny for it now. So <laughs> I applaud your effort, and I'm glad that there's a charismatic showman that wants to spread this perspective to all of us. So awesome talking to you. I need a nap. Yeah, that was so... It's so fascinating. I'm going to have to listen to it multiple times. It makes me mad. Does it make you mad? Like, I'm like, fuck, I don't fucking understand. No, I thing. feel the opposite. I feel like, wow, I don't know so much. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I feel like I've just watched an, uh, a Sean White snowboard. And I'm like, not in my lifetime. I'll never experience that. Yeah. That's out of the realm of my experience. It's amazing. To understand a black hole like you do, I can just immediately say, it's not in my lifetime going to yeah. happen. But we got a little closer today. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Horizons, a 21st Century Space Odyssey is the name of the live show. The website is briancoxlive.co.uk. I apologize it's .co.uk, but it, we couldn't get .com because someone had stolen it. That's because the actor Brian Cox clearly has a live show. I think he might. Can I tell you the most embarrassing thing? I look at my calendar and I saw a couple of weeks ago, Brian Cox coming in. And my first thought was, our stairs are really rickety down there. And I know Brian Cox is an older actor. And for two weeks, I've been fucking with those stairs down there, trying to make them more stable, because I keep thinking, well, Brian Cox is coming, <laughs> and he's older, and I can't risk him losing his footing. <laughs> and then I even said to them, I got to get Brian Cox when he's here to say, fuck off! Yeah. Do you want to? Do, I love it. And you know what? I went for dinner with him once in London. No way! Oh, just before the pandemic, like the February before it all hit. And we went out for dinner, and we went to this restaurant, and he'd got there first, and he'd obviously gone and said, 
it's Brian Cox, right? Fucking Brian Cox. Like, whatever he said. <laughs> and so they seated him down and then I came in and I went, oh, it's, it's Brian Cox. And they went, oh no. Who's the imposter? But yeah, they thought, have we given him the, the other Brian Cox's table and the Brian Cox is there? <laughs> Wait, yeah. this, is a, this is a coincidence. You weren't meeting one. No, we were. Oh, you were? Okay. We'd arranged to meet. So we kind of knew that this would happen. What would have been great is if he had taken upon himself to make the reservation, right? And then you called after him and you said, I want to make a reservation yeah. for two people at 8 p.m. <laughs> Brian Cox. Sir, you've already called and made a reservation. No, I promise you. That's what they thought at the desk. They were so, so you confused. could see the look on their face. They go, oh shit, the other Brian Cox has got that Brian Cox's oh. table. What brought you guys together? Just your names? Because I'd meet a Dak Shepard if there was a scientist named Dak Shepard. I'd totally have dinner with him. <laughs> yeah, we'd have mutual friends and he did it before. The first time I met him was at an awards ceremony and I was giving the award to someone in London and he was there and he jumped up on stage and, and took <laughs> oh, my place. Funny. Oh, that's And so funny. we'd met. We have that here in the States. We have John Favreau and John Favreau. Do you know both of those yeah. John Favreaus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Star Wars John Favreau. And the yeah. speechwriter John Favreau yeah, yeah. and Pod Save America. Well, Brian Cox, the academic, uh, the professor, the uh, live performer who will bring to your, hopefully a town near you, Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey. Go see it. Get your mind blown. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. Rolling. This is for Brian Cox. My favorite actor, Brian Cox. Let's give a little context. Okay. Full gale force. No, no. Deluge. It is very rainy in Los Angeles. In like a Michigan rain, like big, big, heavy raindrops. Yeah. A lot of precipitation. And I had to drive, obviously, to the mm. coffee. I couldn't do my coffee walk, so I drove. Too dangerous. But there was still a line, and I couldn't really park anywhere because there was just floods. Okay. So Flash flooding. That's right. So I had to abandon ship. But thank God, miracle, Wobby Wob had already gone tomorrow and already got coffee. So thank God. I bet Wobby Wob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hearken a guess. Wobby Wob, do you feel energized when it's like this out? Like, were you up and at him? I like it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you love Portland so much. No. <laughs> the only Chicago. Thing I well, he does. He loves Portland. It's yeah, his but favorite I think, city. But my, my guess was based on Chicago. The only thing I don't like is we have a leak in our back <laughs> oh, boy. shed. Yeah. Oh, so I get a little bit of anxiety every time it rains because I mm -hmm. think it's going to ruin our That's floors true. and shoes that we leave outside sometimes. I have the same. So I have, like, total excitement because, mm -hmm. ooh. Something new. Little dark, little romantic. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, Wobby Wob, uh, I start thinking like, whoo, it's going to be really flooded around the attic. <laughs> it's going to be really muddy for our guests. That's going to be its own thing. Yeah. What's going to leak? Same thing. New house. Always finding out something's broke. Sure. Yeah. Ooh, I'll add this to the mix because it's been absolutely showering pollen. Yeah. We have this epic oak tree, which is great. It's the coolest thing about this whole place. I don't know how many hundred-year-old it is, but it's enormous. And then the eucalyptus, and they are just dumping pollen. It's gathered in big, big, almost like piles of leaves. Mm. And so my next thought was that rain is going to push all that pollen in all of the drains, and all the drains are going to back up, and there's going to be a flood. Oh, but also it'll clear out the air. It's been so allergy-ridden. Yeah, so many allergens. So many. Too many. And then, okay, last order of business. Mm -hmm. I was a little bummed Big Brown isn't out front. Big Brown's getting new lithium batteries. Ooh. Yep, which is exciting. But Big Brown needed a wash, needed a rinse off. This would have been an opportunity. It would have looked stellar afterwards, but instead it's in a shop 
somewhere. Dang. Yeah. I, I like that too, that my car gets washed. Before. Yeah. No, yeah. you guys, it leaves little dots. If the sun comes out. But if it slowly, slowly evaporates under the gray skies, it can look pretty, pretty, pretty good. Yeah, when it just does a little squirt here in LA, it's the worst because all it does is like um, mud up all the dust on your car, yeah, and then yeah. you have little mud dumps everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> little yeah, little pooties all over your vehicle. <laughs> oh goodness, Brian Cox. Wow, will anyone make it to this? I guess is the question, fact check. Great question. So this obviously was an interesting edit for me <laughs> because I can't edit it. Like, I, I can't take out anything because I know it's all very relevant. Yeah, and also as not a physicist, like you can listen to someone's story and go, oh, that part's irrelevant to That's them. what I'm saying. I don't know What's records it, yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything. But it was also incredibly enjoyable to try to and to listen back. For me, I enjoy it. Yeah, and when you had a second round at it, did you find that you were digesting more this time? Yes, I comprehended a teeny bit more. Mm-hmm. But it's going to come in small increments like that. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible to be around a brain like that and to also think about the world in that way. It's so cool. Yeah. It's yeah. so cool. It feels like make-believe. Like, it feels like Harry Potter. I think so, yeah. Well, time ends in the middle of a black hole and yeah. it switches with space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of these things where I do question, is it even worth thinking about? <laughs> Well, I don't think about it ever. So that's why it's fun to dip in. I think if I thought about it every day, it would be too much. Because it's unlike if you study, you know, if you're into measuring things and you're into chemistry, these are all things that you can kind of get your arms around here on planet Earth. It's all very tangible. And I don't think you can explore this topic without just where do we come from, where are we going, hovering at all times. I don't find that the most comforting line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get curious about it, but then I, I could see it just driving me mad. Right, exactly. It's so implicit in the study of all this because the timeline's so crazy. And you see a star that's billions of years old, like what? It's very mind-expanding, but yeah. I enjoy it. I, I do... And I, a fun package it came in. Very fun, very delightful man. Well, we did talk about him being a keyboardist. Yeah. But he was in a couple bands that charted in England, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of fun that it came from a, you know, rock retired star. rock star. Yeah, it is very cool. He had such an English 80s rock star look. He did. We should have subtitles on this one. Put them on, Rob. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what if how you did subtitles in a podcast was while the person was talking, there was someone just speaking loudly what they were saying. Just saying it again. But with like a, a half second delay. So it was just a mush. <laughs> Yeah. Don't listen to this on double speed. I know a lot of people mm. like to listen to podcasts on double speed. This should be half speed. I can't personally understand how it's enjoyable to listen to things faster because I wanted to brush up on a book that I already love and have already read twice for a guess. But I found myself doing 1.5. That's about as max I can handle. And so I thought while I was listening to it, like, I can get it, but it's not enjoyable. There's yeah. no space for my mind to implant myself into that thought yeah. or yeah, to dance with it, to play with it. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, how do you fucking even fact check someone? Well, like obviously this? I can't I couldn't fact check any of the science, mm -hmm. but I do have two facts. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Well, they're, I mean, yeah. you know, they're stretches. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. They're like slant rhymes. You know slant rhymes? You know what where, oh, it's kind of a rhyme, but It's not. like not really a rhyme. A lot of hip-hop has gone in that direction, I've noticed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or another tactic used, which wasn't prevalent when I was a kid in the 80s, Run DMC, all those groups. Mm -hmm. You just say the same word a bunch of times, too. You end, like, multiple sentences with the, with the same word. Oh. So it's not a rhyme. Like, give an it's example. It's the same, oh, man. I'm gonna have to make one up. Okay. Like, but I didn't come with her to this dance, and my life isn't about a dance. And I was, you know, and oh. they'll just say the same word. This is kind of common. Yeah. Place, and <laughs> I've noticed it, and I thought, well, that's maybe kind of the kind of rapping I could do. You just did it. Yeah. You did pretty good. <laughs> oh my god! Thank you great. so much. <laughs> um. Monica showed up in stripes. My favorite movie is Stripes. <gasps> I love to <laughs> draw lines. I'm out. I'm that out. was good. Uh, we that just gave me a little PTSD because at UCB, yeah. in improv class, a warm up is Beastie Rap. Ooh, what's what makes it Beastie? I think it's called Beastie Rap. Oh, hold on, it's not fully. It's real life. America, can you hear? I'm gonna turn my microphone towards the ceiling. Oh, what a difference! <laughs> Holy cow! Break your volume. Oh my God, this is actually kind of a ding, ding, ding because the earth. The earth. The earth yes. and the universe. Yes, and rain. Yeah. The physics. That's right. And the law of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Hmm. Um, I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> I mean, I learned it and yeah. I was excited because I had a real time learning moment. Yeah. About that objects don't exert force on one another, just one object's bending the fabric. The fabric, yeah. But what's weird in that, oh, God, I had a, I ruminated on that a bit. Mm. And I thought, well, the only thing that's curious about that is, okay, so I can understand that the earth is creating this divot, and then so all the fabric around it is, is slanted towards that divot. So then the moon is rolling into it. But again, doesn't for rolling to exist, you still need gravity? Yeah, yes. So I don't know why just the fabric is sloped in a way that brings things around it. That's basically centrifugal force or the opposite of that. Oh, God. I know, I'm sorry. Never mind. I can't I, but, answer. But I, later, I, like, I left the interview feeling so good that I finally understood that. And I was laying in bed and I said, well, it still seems a little out there to me. But, hey, they know. I'm sure. I don't. I don't. I don't. In fact, number one. <laughs> so Brian May from Queen also went into physics. Right, right, right. As a side hustle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Brian Cox, same name, that's confusing. Right, two Brian's. He's on a show. He helps with a, a science show in England. And Brian Cox said that it's one of the longest shows ever. Right, 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 right. So then I looked up longest running British television programs. Oh. And Horizon, the one that he's talking about, Started in 1964 and is still going. Holy smokes. Yeah, 58 years. Oh, baby. Mm -hmm. mm -mm -mm. But it's not the longest. Oh. The longest uh -oh. is Lord Mayer's show. It has been running 77 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> what is it? Just draw simple drawings? 
It is <laughs> one of the best known, oh, uh, fuck, oh. annual events. Okay. Sorry. Well, it's okay. still listed. <laughs> in London, as well as one of the longest established, dating back to the 13th century. A new the, the 13th century? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's when it first. <laughs> that's fucking 800 years a old. A new Lord Mayor is appointed every year, and the public parade that takes place as his or her inauguration ceremony reflects that this was one of the most prominent offices in England. Mm. Okay, so that's more of a ceremony. Now let's look at, oh, Eurovision is on here as three. Hey, can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. Wouldn't it be spectacular if you're like, you're, you're in your car, you're listening to us chit chat about this and that, and we're like, oh, the rain is so charming. You're starting to hear it. Like, oh, wow, I can actually hear it. Yeah. And then what if it was just growing and growing and then the listener heard a huge collapse <laughs> and the ceiling came down on us. Actually, that's a ding, ding, ding for our next fact check. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, an Easter egg. Ooh, okay. Join us for the next fact check. Oh, oh not, not the next fact in this fact fact check but the next that's right okay the next fact check okay great so that was a fact great socks thank you oh wow i'm jealous of those thank you i'll get you some wowzers they're floral oh my gosh also if you want to listen to oppenheimer's lecture at colorado university it is on youtube oh i should listen to that it's 59 minutes so i was gonna play it but i I'm not going sure, to. Sure, that's crazy. Will you send it to me right now? I will. As a text message? Yeah. Listen. Yeah, we're going to hear some creaks, some... And then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. <sighs> then that's the end. That's the end <laughs> that's of our show. Bit. Who publishes that episode? A firefighter. <laughs> I'm going to send you something else, too. Posthumously. Oh, my God. I think I'll likely be okay in the corner here. Yeah, you're protected. We're right under the A-frame. You'll be, you'll be crushed by those beams. <laughs> yeah, the beams are going to take us okay. out. Oh, but upside. So long ago, there's two skylights in this attic, and it was it would just blast ultraviolet rays on me, and it was too hot. So I covered them long ago with aluminum foil, as if this were a drug den. Um, so there is a shot that when everything collapses, the aluminum foil will capsulate, will will encrust, will come over the microphones. Oh, wow. And so it'll keep them dry. And so for the firefighter, again, these are yours. Finders, keepers, losers, keepers. <laughs> Enjoy your very expensive mics. Or maybe the aluminum foil will save us. Oh, we'll cower under it? And it'll be a new physics law, like that Monica's is unknown. Monica's law. Unknown. <laughs> Unknowing. 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 Although Monica's law definitely sounds like one of those terrible laws. Like Murphy's. No, no, no. Murphy's law is great. I, I'm talking more like Monica's law, legislation to protect other women who might get hit by illegal aliens oh. driving drunk. You know, they, they name them after a, 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 a person who's a died. A woman or a girl quite often. That's right, because they want to elicit some yeah, sadnesses. Yeah. Monica's law will be a law. They'll make it a capital offense. To host a show in a space that you're not having tested for structural integrity mm. biannually. Okay, To that prevent this from good. ever happening again, because it's such a tragedy. I think it's probably going to be something like, it's a capital punishment mm. to have mice. Oh, oh. In, in a tenant's... Like if you're a landlord. That's right. Oh, to yeah. allow mice to just run free and not act 
as quickly and swiftly as possible <laughs> to eliminate those poo-poos. And that would be a capital offense. Yeah. Capital crime with yeah. the death penalty. Did you see that cute armchair direct post? It was this tiny mouse drawing or like animation of this tiny mouse pooping and then vacuuming <laughs> up this poop. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, it was oh, so cute. And it said, I didn't see Monica, that. what if this is what your mouse looks like? <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> vacuuming up its poop. Have to, let me see if I still have oh it. Oh my God, send that along. Uh, Oppenheimer, <laughs> what a mix What a mix That was bag. it, obviously. We're all over the place, but that's life. That's that what is, we learned. That is, that is. The weather's all over the place. Mm -hmm. The storm is passing. The next fact check's going to be great, you guys. Oh. Just come back for that. Come back. Well, they weren't here for this one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this oh. six or seven times. I'm going to. I, I really. Oh, I loved I it. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed sitting in it, and I really enjoyed listening back. I did. There I was agree. was a whole chunk of time where I was like, I'm just listening. Yes, I loved it. But I do. I'm going to forecast, ding, 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 mm. that the many of the comments will read. I made it seven minutes. How boring. You okay, know? let them. Because um, we're here I hope to... you choke on your textbook, you fucking nerd. Oh, no. I used to love you. Now, so I got a, a comment the other day. It was like, you lost me to Rogan. <laughs> it's just a weird thing, like, as if I'm somehow just competing for listeners. Also, that it's an either or. It doesn't have to be an either or. Whatever. And I also... Just, I thought it was funny. If you're going to do that, which is fine, I encourage it. No, I don't. Okay. Don't I, talk to my friend like that. Okay, but do an obscure one. Obscure. Obscure. So go like, you lost me to Teddy Cheats. Then we're like, great for Teddy. Great for Teddy, but yeah. now what would happen, this is why it'd be more effective, is that I would now have to go into my podcast browser and type in Teddy Cheats. That's I want right. to know who I've lost his customer That's to. Right. What is he slinging that tastes better? Yeah. And... You know, it could be really fun if Teddy Cheats, he was like one of nine listeners. Yeah. Oh, my God. We would probably find out he was Teddy Cheats. Oh, that would be smart. Yeah. A lot of smart moves clever. to make. Was it was it Rogan that wrote it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh boy. I love you. Love you. Uh, if that second fact check doesn't materialize, it's because we passed in this storm. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Oh, Put some plastic on this episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart.